Our first scripture this morning comes from Mark chapter 1. And Mark writes, This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in, the, in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one called the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And John wore clothing made from camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one who's more powerful than I the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. So family systems theory says that there are four questions of identity. And these are the same four questions of identity that we answer continually through our lives. They are, first, who do I belong to? Once we've answered, who do I belong to, we can then answer the question, what are my boundaries? Once we know who we belong to and what our boundaries are, we can then answer the question, what am I good at? And when we know who we belong to, what are our boundaries, and what are we good at, we can then answer the question, who am I? Who am I? And this is an important question for us as we grow as disciples, because as we've said on multiple occasions... What it is to live the life of discipleship is the daily decision to give all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of God. That's discipleship in a nutshell. It is knowing all that it is giving all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of God. Which means we need to be on this path of increasingly learning more about who God is and what God loves and what God doesn't love, and then also knowing ourselves. Understanding our relationships and how they affect us. Understanding who God has created us to be. As we discover more and more who God has created us to be, we can more and more give ourselves wholly to Him. Him. 
Now, the gospel according to Mark describes Jesus' baptism differently than the other three gospels. In the other three gospels, when the spirit descends like a dove, everyone who's there sees it. You know, John makes it most explicit. Like the whole crowd saw the Spirit of God come down like a dove and a voice from heaven say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. But in Mark, it's Jesus who sees the Spirit come down like a dove. It is Jesus who hears the words, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This event at the very beginning of Mark's gospel sets the tone for Jesus' entire life and ministry throughout the rest of the gospel. Because Jesus' identity is not going to be in the miracles he performs. It's not going to be in his teaching. It's not even going to be in his work on the cross. The identity of Jesus is Son of God with whom the Father is well pleased. And this allows Jesus to live with a certain confidence and strength and, uh, and uh, I want to use the word self-efficacy, but that's like a $20,000 word that I'm going to have to define. So I'm going to anyway. Self-efficacy, that's the ability to, uh, to live out of, of your uh, understanding of who you are and your inner relationship with others. But it's because Jesus understands that his identity is the only begotten Son of God with whom the Father is well pleased. For us, as we think about what it looks like to live as followers of Jesus, as disciples, as the children of God, we come back to these four questions of identity. And as we learn how to answer them, as we learn the truth about who we belong to, what are our boundaries, how we have been wired and shaped and gifted to be good at stuff, we can then answer the question of who we are. So the first question is, who do we belong to? And in many ways, this is the most important question. Because without a, a solid understanding of who we belong to, we can't begin to answer the other questions. Without that foundation of knowing who it is that we belong to, who it is that we associate with, where our deepest relationships are, we can't begin building up and reaching the penthouse of self-identity. For Christians, we are convinced that at our very core, we belong to a God who loves us, who desires to know us, who has bent over backwards and gone out of his way to invite us into a relationship with him. This is who we belong to, and as, as part of God's love for us, he has uh, surrounded us by a family that we belong to, and a wider uh, church family and group of friends who we belong to. But at our very core, the, um, the, 
the never-changing center of our belonging is God. We belong to God. God has created us. He's knit us together in our mother's wombs. And every moment of our lives, he has reached out and invited us into deeper, more intimate relationship with him. And what we discover as we look at the history of Israel and then the history of the church and even back at our own personal histories is that there are boundaries that when we keep them, our life goes better. God has shown us a certain way to live. He has created guardrails on our lives which draw us nearer to him and keep us out of trouble. And not only that, he's gifted us in specific ways. Some of us are outgoing. Some of us are uh, skilled in music. Some of us are uh, voracious readers and learners and enjoy teaching people the stuff we've learned. Some of us have a big heart and love to go out and uh, share what we have in our blessings with others. Some of us are prayer warriors who uh, at the drop of a hat can you know, stop everything that we're doing and intercede for someone else. And as we, as we come to understand who we belong to, the stuff we need to stay away from and, 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 and be closer to, as we understand how we've been gifted and wired and shaped and called to serve in God's kingdom, then we can answer this question of who we are. Like Jesus, a big part of who we are will be child of God. But we'll be child of God with a purpose. We'll be child of God understanding how that we can uh, better live into the way he's created us and his best and most preferred future for our lives. Knowing ourselves is deeply important for knowing God. We can be ultra-spiritual, but if we are emotionally immature, we are still going to find ourselves in some really tough situations. We're going to find ourselves hurting people unintentionally because of, of leftover uh, wounds from our past and, um, and assumptions that we make that haven't been challenged because we are living in our immaturity. But God invites us into a new way of living where we are growing in maturity, where we are growing in Christ-likeness, where we're growing spiritually and together it moves us into the future that God has called us. 
You know, I think about, um, you know, I think about seasons of my life. And, you know, the, the easy one is like high school, right? Like it's, it's far enough away that I can be like, oh, that guy was a knucklehead, you know, but it's near enough that I remember vividly how I was a knucklehead. Um, and, you know, I look back at high school and, you know, in some ways, I was probably more spiritual as a high schooler than I am even now as a 32, almost 33-year-old. You know, I was really good about keeping uh, a quiet time and, you know, uh, I'd, I'd read through the gospel in a month or, or what have you. Um, but I was so immature <laughs> that I was still wildly capable of hurting people because of my immaturity and spiritualizing it in the process. You know, this past week, um, uh, Ravi Zacharias's company um, came out and said, yeah, the allegations are true. He, he used his massive spirituality to hurt people. And it seems like we can't go three months without some high-profile Christian leader falling from grace. We discover that they have, you know, abused a secretary. Or they have, um, you know, taken advantage of someone in their ministry. Or they've stolen money or what have you. And... Time and time and time again, we are reminded of this reality that growing spiritually while staying immature doesn't actually move us closer to Christ-likeness and discipleship. The two have to work together. They have to. Or we find ourselves just a, uh, a really capable abuser sometimes. So when we think about what it looks like to grow in maturity, what it looks like to, um, to grow in the understanding of who we are and what we are capable of and what we need to be on the lookout for, it's then that we are able to give that fully to God and receive the, the strength um, to live the way that he's called us and designed us to live. So here, uh, through the season of Lent, we're going to be looking at the way that Jesus, um, that Jesus is not just spiritual, but he's also mature. He, he isn't just filled with the flowery language and theology of, of spirituality, but we also see this, this deep-rooted maturity, which allows him to live a holy life. Our next text comes from Mark chapter 9. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. 
There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they all looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. I find it fascinating that uh, that Peter's first response to the transfiguration is, uh, "Let's build houses." You know, I think sometimes we are in moments that are so special. That there's part of us that instead of fully being present and embracing the moment, in the middle of it, we begin to grieve that we know it won't last forever. I think this is what we see Peter doing here. That... Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus and they their clothes are a brand of white that has never been seen in world history up to that point. And Peter is already expecting it to end and is looking to the future. How do we remember this? Well, let's let's build, you know, let's build these memorials. I think that's a little bit of a sign of immaturity. Instead of the instead of embracing the gift that God is giving him in the present, he's already thinking about how do I remember it in the future? There's a fearfulness that he won't be able to remember this moment going forward. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us that uh, Peter was a hoarder, but I wonder if he might have. He needs this, this tangible thing to be able to hold on to that memory. But just as he is there thinking about what's coming, a cloud appears, covers them, and a voice from the cloud says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Once again, we see repeated here in the gospel according to Mark, 
the central truth of Jesus's identity. He is the son of the father. And the instruction is to listen to him. Now, I think it's, it's, it's important for us to, to, to pay attention to this. We are to listen to Jesus because he is the son of the father. Not because he's sitting there with Moses and Elijah. Not because of any of the miracles he's done in the first eight chapters of Mark. But because of his identity as the son of the father. Jesus' teaching ministry, Jesus' healing ministry, Jesus' ministry of miracles through the Gospels is an outpouring from his identity of being the Son. He's not defined by what he does. He's not defined by his popularity. He's not uh, defined by what he has. He's defined by his relationship with God. You know, the three main attacks on our identity in the world today is the lie that says we are what we do or what's been done to us. The lie that says we are what we have or what we don't have. And the lie that says we are what people Popularity, wealth, and achievement. They are incredible temptations to place our identity in. And my guess is that if we're honest with ourselves, we have all done it from time to time. Who of us, when we were in middle school, put our identity in what table we sat at at lunchtime. Who of us, when we were uh, young people in our careers, put our identity in what sort of raise we got in a particular year? Who of us, when we took on a project, put our identity in the success or the failure of that project. Who of us have, have found our identity in some negative thing that's happened to us in the past? And we've all faced that temptation. The vast majority of us have given into it from time to time. But the truth of the gospel is that our identity is not in what we have done. It's not in what's been done to us. It's not in what we have. It's not in what people think about us. Our identity is in the God who loves us. Who created us and thought that we were worth enough to send his son into the world to adopt us from slavery to sin and death. That's our identity. That is our core belonging. We belong to a God who loves us. 
for Jesus and the disciples. There was a temptation to put their identity in these other things. I mean, for, for Jesus, it's obviously put on display with the temptation in the wilderness as recorded in the other Gospels. But even for the disciples, as Jesus sends them out and they are uh, healing folks in different towns and villages and cities, and word about Jesus is spreading. It'd be incredibly easy to place their identity in that healing ministry or in the popularity of the rabbi Jesus. But Jesus continues to call them back to their identity as the sons of Abraham, the children of God. And we are called back in the same way as, as we experience these opportunities for both success and failure, which pull at us and try to vie for, for our own self-identification. In the midst of that, the Holy Spirit is calling out and bringing us back and saying, no, 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 your identity is not in what you've done. It's not in what's been done to you. It's not in what you have. It's not in what people think about you. Your identity is in the one who loves you. Your identity is shaped by the Father who knit you together in your mother's womb, who sent his son into the world to die so that you might have eternal life, so that you might know him. Final text today comes from Mark chapter 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables, saying, A man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tents to collect from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and they went away.
Jesus understands his conflict with the religious authorities in these terms. The Father has set apart the nation of Israel to be a holy people set apart, unique for the the salvation and transformation of the world. As is the case, the nation has strayed. And time after time, God has sent prophets and messianic kings to try to bring the nation back. But time after time, the nation's decision has been to abuse these prophets, to kill these messianic kings. And Jesus is one more in line and the last one in line. Jesus will come. He will remind the people of their holy calling. He will invite them to return to what they were designed for. To once again claim their identity as God's chosen people. But he'll be rejected. The son whom the vineyard owner loves will be killed by the tenants. This is a hard story. This is not one with a happy, feely, fuzzy ending. Jesus understands that his identity as the son does not protect him from pain. Does not protect him from hardship. His identity as the son does not make him immune from suffering. You know, there's a I think there's a tendency in, you know, the church is to fault for this. You know, there's this tendency to think that, you know, once you become a Christian, everything should be fine. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I actually heard a TV preacher say that once, right? Like, become a Christian and everything will be fine. If Jesus wasn't immune to suffering. Guess what? We aren't either. If Jesus wasn't immune to pain, wasn't immune to rejection, wasn't immune to being killed, we cannot rightly expect that following Jesus is going to bring about immunity to pain and hardship either. 
but I think we can expect a new resource for living in the midst of that pain and hardship. I don't know, did anyone else see? So um, one of these like national mental health organizations just released some data that they've been collecting over the last few months. Um, and it showed across the board, mental health is plummeting. People are sick. Our, like We are struggling. Things are terrible. Every single demographic is down, except for one. There was one demographic that they measured over this, this several month period of people whose mental health outcomes were slightly up. And those are the people who reported going to church every week. Not because church is some sort of magical fix for all mental health issues. But because there's something powerful about being reminded that God loves us. There's something powerful about coming to the table and experiencing the body and the blood of Christ. There's something powerful about being a part of a community. That especially at a time like this, we desperately need. Honestly, I wasn't surprised by the findings. Because it's been my experience. Good things happen when I show up. Even if I show up with a bad attitude, good things happen when I show up. Being a part of the community of faith is important. It, it, having people who can intercede knowing that there are people who are praying for me, being able to experience Sundays like last Sunday, where if you were here, you probably experienced it too, where just the presence and the power of God was heavy in this place. It makes a difference. And that doesn't mean that coming to church on Sunday is going to be some magic pill that fixes all your problems. Because it won't. But what we discover is that here in the community of faith, surrounded by a group of people who share the identity of being the children of God, we are given resources to meet the day's challenges. We together pray that God would give us our daily bread, would deliver us from temptation, would give us the courage to forgive those who've wronged us. So we continue to show up, knowing that on a week-by-week -week basis, it may not make that big a difference. 
There are some weeks that it's like you come in feeling miserable, you come out feeling great, and that is amazing and wonderful and good. But as is the case with most things in life, growth comes slowly. Imperceptibly slow. But as we look back six months, a year, five years, we remember what we were in the middle of, how we felt, what was going on, how, the, the, the nonsense that we put our identity in, and we can say, wow, look at what's happened. So um, one of the things that I uh, really appreciate about this technological age that we live in is that um, I have like three different apps who uh, want me to remember what happened a year ago, two years ago, five years ago kind of thing. Um, and going back and seeing what my kids looked like a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. Because on a daily basis, I don't notice them looking different. They just don't, right? Like, like, they don't grow three inches overnight. Their hair doesn't get long and make them look like these little teenagers overnight. Growth is slow and imperceptible until you look back and see where you came from. On a daily basis, we will not recognize that we have that much more of ourselves to give to that much more of God. We won't. It's just, it's not going to happen. But what we'll be able to do is we'll be able to think back on what our emotional and mental state was a year ago and how it is now. We'll be able to think about where, uh, where we had anxiety and frustration and where we had misplaced our identity a year ago and where we've been brought to. Growth is slow. Growth is imperceptible. Uh, I'm convinced that the main reason why uh, most of us have already given up on our New Year's resolutions is because we didn't immediately get the results that we wanted. Like, standing on the scale and seeing a 0.2 pound difference doesn't feel good especially if it's in the wrong direction. But if we're consistent, we can look back at our note from six months ago and say, oh, I've gone 22 pounds in the right direction. Cool. The growth in spiritual and emotional maturity is slow and imperceptible, but boy, is it worth it.
as we daily give all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of God on a daily basis, it won't feel like we're actually growing. But especially if we had the foresight to do a little like journaling or diary making or just writing down what's going on, being able to look back and see the way we've actually been been transformed and the way we've grown, it will blow our minds. We'll be able to see God's grace and God's provision happening over and over and over again. But it takes a commitment on our part. Today, tomorrow, the next day, I'm going to give all that I know of myself to all that I know of God. I'm going to do the hard work of self-discovery. I'm going to do the hard work of studying Scripture and praying consistently. And I think this, this prayer station's idea with families is really exciting. I, I'm, I am encouraged to see how, how God uses that in our life together. Um, you know, I've already been encouraged to see the way that God has used the memorization of Scripture in our life together. And we've only been doing it for a month and a half. Just, just think. I mean, just, just, you know, in your holy imagination, fast forward to September. And just imagine the sort of slow, imperceptible growth that could happen in the next seven months if we committed to scripture, memorization, and daily prayer. Again, we won't see anything day to day. We probably won't see anything week to week. But the long, slow, imperceptible growth, they can change our lives. It can reduce our anxiety, increase our trust. Help us better discover who we are and how God has wired us and called us to live in his kingdom. Let's pray together. Most holy and gracious God, we thank you that you love us. That even when our growth is imperceptible, that you can see it. That you are working behind the scenes, making it happen. Lord, help us to be open and perceptive and receptive to the work which you want to do within us. May we give all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you today and every day. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ go near you to defend you, go before you to guide you, go behind you to forgive you, go above you to bless you, and live within you so you may love one another. He lives and he reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God now and even forevermore.